Radio station WHCH, the student-owned and operated radio station of Hofstra College. You're listening to WVHC-FM, 88.7 megacycles. WRHU, Radio Hofstra University. This is Mike Kluger from Hofstra Radio, class of 1983, and you're tuned to the special edition of the Hofstra Radio Alumni Show during our second annual All-Star Alumni Marathon. I'll be hosting this hour, bringing you some interviews from some of our more prominent alumni with some rather interesting careers. But I want to take a moment to remind you that you can make a donation to Radio Hofstra University. Log on to WRHU.org and click on the Donate Now button located at the left-hand side of the page. It's a quick, simple way to show your support for Radio Hofstra University. The current students and staff greatly appreciate your generous support. We'll be back with our first interview right after a bit of music. Why are there so many songs about rainbows? And what's on the other side? Rainbows are visions, but only illusions, and rainbows have nothing to hide. So we've been told, and some choose to believe it. I know they're wrong, wait and see. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow Mr. Kermit the Frog doing Rainbow Connection with live in-studio accompaniment by Rubber Ducky. And a very appropriate song to introduce our guest for the segment because he is a close friend not only with Kermit and Rubber Ducky but with all of the Muppets. Dick Maitland has had a long career as an audio mix engineer, live sweetener, sound designer, and sound effects artist. He's been working with Sesame Street since 1969 in their audio department for a total of 43 years and still going strong. In addition, Dick has worked sound for various live events, including the Grammy Awards, the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, PBS's A Capital Fourth Independence Day Celebration, the Barack Obama Inaugural Celebration at Lincoln Memorial, and the Wide World of Sports 35th Anniversary. Dick has also done sound effects editing for various soap operas, including Ryan's Hope, Dark Shadows, One Life to Live, and All My Children. And if that isn't quite enough for one career, Dick is also the winner of no less than 14 Emmy Awards. Dick, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. And I understand you have a friend that you've brought along with us. Would you like to introduce him to the audience? Yes, Robert Ducky, say hello. <laughs> He's quite eloquent. <laughs> Dick, I'd like you to tell us a little about your professional work, how you got started in the industry, and maybe a bird's eye view, or in this case I should probably say a big bird's eye view, of where your career has taken you. Well, it began here at Hofstra <clears throat> and uh, WVHC, Oh, I'd say uh, 43, 44, maybe 45. Gee, I don't want to count anymore. Uh, So it's been a long time. I came into Hofstra 
1961, I met Jeffrey Krauss at the radio station here and immediately got involved, uh, starting uh, with production and with the technical side because he needed both at the time. And uh, back then, uh, it was pretty much scratch as you can, and we rebuilt this, the entire radio station in one summer before the next uh, year started, and I was involved in that. And we were also doing production, which I learned to um, get pretty good at from the people that were here at the time, including Jeffrey, who was a master at getting you to do things the right way the first time without poking you with a stick. It was an art to that. So if you could talk about your first job in the industry after leaving Hofstra Radio and then where your career led to from there, that would be interesting. Uh, I was here at Hofstra for uh, uh, two and a half years, and then I had to go to work. Uh, I worked in the city at, w- at ABC Network for the network news department. And then, of course, that war came along, and so I ended up in the military for a year and a half and then came back um, to uh, to Hofstra and um, to the radio station and to a job at ABC, and I did both working with Jeff Krause. Um, in 1969, I left ABC and um, began a career as a sound effects artist, I thought, in California. Uh, but then I got called back to do Dark Shadows because there was a problem that they didn't have the guy they wanted. And I came back, and that summer... Um, I started working at Dark Shadows, and then the fellow was fine, and they didn't need me anymore, so they said, we'll make you a deal. Uh, we'll pay for your college, and um, we'll give you all the work you want. And then about a month later, I got a phone call from a gentleman by the name of Jim Henson, who I had heard of before, and he called me down and was interviewing me to do the job as the sound effects man for, uh, for Sesame Street. Now, I didn't start immediately because they had a fellow they wanted to use who was an old friend, which, I, which they did. But I began that fall. And so from that fall to today, I've been the senior sound effects artist for Sesame Street. And during that time, there's always been time off, and I've been able to do a lot of other what I think interesting interesting things. Um, so I was able to work in the real world outside of this wonderful small world of children's television. So I brought that expertise back here. And um, all of that came from what I learned here at Hofstra, uh, which was – Working with Jeff Krause and the people that were here at the time, uh, a guy named Bob Hensler, and met some amazingly creative people. Um, uh, And what you learn here is not so much how to think out of the box, but to throw the box away. That's what the Hofstra difference is, I think, is because we're not a big urban giant community that's pushing you to go here and go there. This is about getting it right and learning how to do it and then survive in the real world after that. Because there's two different worlds. There's this world where we learn... And then there's the world we go into where it all has to be applied. And there's an art to getting that to happen, right? And you learn that here at Hofstra. That's what I learned. And it has served me my entire life. Now, you've been with Children's Television Workshop for 43 years. I believe you've done work on some other children's shows with them in addition to Sesame Street? Yes, I was able to work on a number of other children's shows with the uh, permission of the workshop. Uh, I worked on this entire uh, 60-element series of Maya Miguel which won several awards, and, of course, Wonder Pets, which I worked with for three years. And then um, there was a lot of smaller things that I did, but it was all good because uh, I could bring what I learned um, at Sesame Street and here to that. And that was a one simple thing. The way to survive in that world and to stay on top and still be number one is to do it just a little bit better every day. Not a lot better, just a little bit. And that little bit of extra that I learned from Jess Christ, you just try a little bit harder. Take five more minutes. And everything that I learned here 
has come down to that extra five minutes and it's paid off my entire life. Now, to be selected to work audio for something as big, for example, as the Barack Obama inaugural celebration or the PBS Capital Fourth or the Grammy Awards is quite an achievement. Well, that's called live sweetening. And what you have to do, it's uh, once again, it's an application of the real world of sound effects. Basically, it's sound effects. Sweetening is nothing more than putting uh, a lot of things on a, perhaps a, a computer keyboard. Uh, I use the uh, Kurzweil 2500s, uh, which I can put a whole keyboard of applause and cheers in. And then having each key be a different part of the applause or the release of the applause, you can actually, you can actually mimic the entire audience. Not so much to replace it, but support it. For example, uh, we just came back from Washington, D.C., working at Capitol Fourth, and uh, it's a huge enterprise. There were five audio mixes involved in this thing, but they still needed a sweetener because once you open up the microphones to the people on the stage, you can't have any applause mics open because it picks up everything that's being broadcast out to the field. So you get this boomy, echoey thing. So basically, it's a, me- it's a mechanical solution to a problem that we, so we just sweeten up the tops and tails of all these things, maybe throw some cheers in, some claps doing along, just to bring the audience into it without really faking the audience. So that's what that's called live audio sweetening, and that's what I do. And how did you become involved in those projects? Was it that your reputation from your oh, work yes. on Sesame Street led yep. those people to recruit you? It was. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Ed Green, who was one of the top audio producers and audio engineers on the West Coast, was in town doing the 100th anniversary of... Um, uh, Carnegie Hall, and he called me and he said, you know, he says, I can't get one of my West Coast Sweeties to come in, but you can do this. He didn't say, I want you to do it. He says, you can do this, which sounded very much like Jeff Krause, because that's the way he looked at the world. And it's wonderful to work with people like that, that look at you and say, you can do this. You just got to figure it out. And so I figured it out, and I did that show with him, and it, <laughs> he won an Emmy Award, not for my work, but for the audio in general. So uh, that was... That was an amazing beginning. But once again, here's a, here's a mentor-type person that, much like the people here at Hofstra do, they look at you. If they think you can do it, they'll tell you, and you can get it done. And let me just clarify for anyone in the audience who doesn't know who Jeff Krause was. Jeff was the general manager of Hofstra Radio, WHCH, WVHC, WRHU for over 30 years. Jeff was a mentor to many of us, myself included. He launched many, many broadcast careers, and sadly, we lost Jeff in 1993. And he was a general curmudgeon. There are some famous people that uh, graduated from this university, and some didn't. Uh, the ones that didn't, Christopher Walken and James Kahn did very well. And, of course, then there's Lou Berger. The head writer for Sesame Street came through here. Uh, Sue Sullivan, who is now doing extremely well on uh, Castle, the TV show. These people came through here in the 60s. And having spoken to them later in life, um, I work with Lou all the time, and we all agreed that what was great about being out here at this school was that it was such uh, an invigorating experience. You, you're encouraged to throw the walls away and just do what you can do and do it the best you can. So all these people, I think, are products of what this particular university does. Dick, out of all the projects that you've worked on professionally, which would you say were your most exciting or memorable projects? Well, to me, the most important one probably was uh, there was a Sesame Street special we did. It was called Christmas Eve on Sesame Street. And it was a wonderful show. It was, it was done in black and white. It was, it was done back in 74, 75. 
with all the characters, and it was just a wonderful, dynamic show. And it's still, it's still in reruns. You can still buy the DVD, or, and you can look up on uh, YouTube and see it. It's just a wonderful piece of work for children. That's the kind of stuff that they need to see because it embodies all the things that you try to teach with a children's show. And which project would you say presented you with the biggest challenge? Well, no doubt the biggest challenge I had was doing these sweetening shows. These are enormous undertakings. There's tremendous pressure. I mean, you're in live national television, and uh, you just there's this is you, you got to get it right. No second take. There is no second take on live. <laughs> now, let me ask you, just so we, including myself and our audience, can live vicariously through you for a moment, what did it feel like the first time you learned that you had won an Emmy Award? Well, I learned an Emmy Award in 1978 uh, for a little show, a little piece I did on Sesame called Tune the Engine. And uh, I hadn't put in for it. It was done by the workshop. And they put in for it. And uh, I, I was in L.A. at the time. I got a phone call. You won the Emmy. I just, just stopped in my tracks. Because like most people, we're, we're involved in our career. We're not thinking, you know, I'm doing this to get an Emmy. That's not the way we approach it. So when it came the first time, it was a bit of a shock. And it was thrilling that, you know, you'd, you'd reached a level, uh, having come from the back room of WVHC in the basement in the rain, in the dark when the power kept going out. So, <laughs> Well, with 14 Emmys under your belt, we're all very proud of you and proud of the many alumni that WVHC, WRHU have produced. But to be honest, I'm not at all surprised by that because WVHC and WRHU do such a wonderful job of, as Bruce Avery, the general manager, is fond of calling it pre-professional development. And when you come out of WVHC, WRHU, you really do have a good handle on the skills that you're going to need in the radio industry and in the broadcast industry. It's true. The um, The way it's taught here, and Jeff was a proponent of this, is the pressure is to get it right, not to get to the top. How do you think your career would have been different if not for the training and experience that you received at WVHC? Well, I don't think I would have made it past the first interview with John Stone or Jim Henson had I not had the experience of working here with the kind of uh, professional, no-nonsense people like Jeff uh, Krause, even Jeff over at the, uh, at the, at the uh, Playhouse, uh, learning how to think out of the box and get things done. We had a wonderful thing where we needed an echo chamber for a shot and we couldn't handle it. So we waited at the radio station to go off here at midnight. We used the, the phone lines for the transmitter to hook up to his echo chamber in the Playhouse to get the echo back to the studio to make this program work. And we, we, and that was sort of the kind of the thinking that they, they just engendered and they just let me do it and they, they pushed it. That's a great that's a great environment to be in. That was my experience with WVHC as well, as you didn't always necessarily have the most expensive or the most state-of-the-art way of doing something, but you always found a way to do it and make it work somehow. Well, there's a part of the work that I do in the real world is called Foley. Now, Foley, for if you're not in, uh, a theater person, is actually taking live sound effects, live footprints, and, and actually doing live things to a microphone where it's not pre-recorded. There's only so many things that can be in a sound effects library. And I learned that here at, at WVHC doing these radio programs where we had to do all these crazy shows, and we just invented it. We just made it up as you went along, and that's where that creativ creativity comes from. What advice would you give to any current students at WRHU who are interested in going into the technical side of the industry? Yeah, either the technical or the creative side. The simple thing you learn here, and they give you the time to do it, is just take an extra minute 
take an extra five minutes or 10 minutes and get it right. The extra five or 10 minutes and just every time that you go and do anything, don't just finish it. Take an extra five minutes and finish it right. And that's what I learned from Jeff and all the people here is you take the extra time to get it right. Then you don't have to explain. And then the power doesn't go off when you hit the button as it did one night at WVHC. <laughs> well, Dick, you've had and continue to have quite a career in the industry. And you continue to do WVHC and WRHU proud as one of our most notable alumni. I wish we could continue to talk. I could listen to this stuff for another hour, but I see Big Bird is frantically flapping his wings and pointing to his wristwatch, so I think that means we're just about out of time. What's that, Rubber Ducky? He's hungry. i got to go feed him. Well, thank you and Rubber Ducky so much for joining us here at WRHU. It's been a blast, and I look forward to seeing you at some of the future Hofstra Radio alumni events. I'll be here. Thank you so much, Dick. And you're listening to the second annual All-Star Alumni Marathon here on WRHU 88.7 FM. And I'm joined in the studios by WRHU General Manager Bruce Avery. Bruce, we just heard an interview with Dick Maitland. And one of the things he was talking about was the role that WVHC, which was the call letters of Hofstra Radio back then, had in preparing him for his career. I know you view pre-professional development as a very strong role in the station, and I believe WRHU does an incredible job on preparing people for the industry. Well, um, that is the mission of WRHU. We have a pre-professional mission, and uh, for now going on 53 years, uh, Radio Hofstra University, which consisted of WHCH, actually that goes on beyond the 53 years because it was a club before we became a broadcast station, and then WVHC and now WRHU, we have been helping people develop as broadcasters and as citizens going out into the world, and we've been successful with that. And one of the really enjoyable parts about being around here, I've been the general manager of the station for the last 18 years, going on 19 years. And one of the real joys is to have folks that have had extraordinary professional careers like Dick Maitland, 14 Emmy Awards in his career and working with children's television. He's one of the greatest practitioners of Foley art comes back here to the station and hangs out with current staff members from 20, 30 years later. And that kind of interaction is what goes on. Uh, and that kind of training and that kind of camaraderie and that kind of family tie between the current staff and the people that have gone on and had extraordinarily successful careers is one of the things that makes this place just an incredible place to be around as an administrator, but also as a, a participant. Absolutely. We have a great relationship between the Hofstra Radio Alumni Association and the station, and various alumni have been able to work closely with students, bring students into the industry, in some cases offer them employment. And as far as the pre-professional development, I've been very fortunate. I've had a very successful career in broadcast engineering. I can honestly say that I would not be professionally where I am today if not for the training and experience that I got in my time at WVHC. And I want to make a special appeal now to any radio alumni that are listening. What was the time and experience at you that you spent at WVHC or WRHU or WHCH worth to you professionally? Did it move you along in your broadcast career? Did it help you land a great job? If so, we're going to ask you now to give something back to the station so that it can continue to offer those opportunities to the current students. 
Bruce, how can the current alumni or anyone listening donate? Well, it's actually now incredibly easy. Uh, what we have now is just go to the main splash page of WRHU.org. That's www.wrhu.org. And in the upper left-hand corner, there is a Donate Now button, and you click on it, and you just follow the prompts. And uh, I actually timed this, Michael. I, we, I was able to do it with a credit card in 25 seconds. A new world record, Bruce. <laughs> now, if you want to put some comments there as well, you can take more time than that. But the I just want to assure everybody that the money goes straight into the gifts account of WRHU, and that means that the station reinvests it into making the broadcast opportunity better. Uh, for example, right now, one of the things that we're raising money for is that uh, we recently became one of the few, if not the only, college radio station to get cr uh, credentials to actually go and cover the Republican convention. And so we're going to be sending people to that and to the Democratic convention. And we have the things coming up this fall where the uh, debate, the second debate is here, a presidential debate here is on the Hofstra campus yet again. And we're going to be going and covering that and then going to Florida for the third debate and also on election night, uh, going to uh, cover the actual presidential election as we have 44 years in a row, and that stuff calls money. So go to WRHU.org, and in the upper left-hand uh, corner, click on the Donate Now, and keep the U in WRHU. That sounds like you're providing some wonderful opportunities for your students, Bruce. And you heard, Bruce, it's quick, it's easy, it's painless. Do your part to help out WRHU so we can continue to serve you. We've got another fascinating interview coming up right after this bit of music. Please come to Boston for the springtime. I'm staying here with some friends and they've got lots of room And you can sell your paintings on the sidewalk Buy a cafe where I hope to be working soon Please come to Boston, she said no Would you come home to me? Dave Loggins performing Please Come to Boston, a very appropriate song to introduce our next guest. Radio alumni Gary Armstrong has been something of a legend in the broadcast news field in Boston. Gary has been working in broadcast news for almost 50 years prior to his retirement. He started his career at ABC Radio Network News in New York, then headed north and culminated his career with an amazing 31-year stint at Boston's TV Channel 7, WHDH. Gary is also a three-time Emmy Award winner. Gary, thank you so much for joining us today. Mike, thank you for inviting me to join, and ever since you extended the invitation, I've, I've been thinking about uh, what I want to say, and I, uh, I, as we were saying in the uh, pre-air warm-up, uh, we'll probably have more to talk about than we have time, which is, which is a great thing. You know, I was just thinking, Mike, uh, I have been up in New England since 1970, which means I'm more of a New Englander than a New Yorker, but I'll always be a New Yorker. I'll always be a Long Islander. I guess you can take the person out of New York, but you just can't take New York out of the person. 
And just to give uh, our... No you, no, you can't, which is why, as our Red Sox, and I, you notice I say our, our Red Sox flounder, I still, I still cannot in my heart take the Yankees. Well, we won't go there because we're going to keep this focused mainly on broadcasting. But just to give our New York listeners who might not be familiar with Gary's work because of his move up to Boston, just to give you an idea of the scope of his career, I want to mention the names of just a few of the people that Gary has crossed paths with over the course of his career. We have Ted Koppel, Howard Cosell, former President Bill Clinton, Tip O'Neill, former President Lyndon Johnson, Frank Sinatra, Johnny Carson, Arthur Godfrey, Merv Griffin, Sammy Davis Jr., Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier, and John Wayne, and I'm sure there were many more of them. Gary, could you give us a bird's eye view of your career? Tell us how you got started in professional broadcasting and where your career progressed to from there. Well, if we stick to what we were talking about before we went on the air, we'll wind up talking about WVHC, which in WVHC was really the linchpin for uh, my lengthy professional career. So that's, that's where it all began. And before we get to that, uh, you were throwing out all of those uh, legendary names, uh, uh, people I was fortunate enough to meet and interview or spend time with across the years, and we just recently uh, observed July the 4th, and we were watching, my wife Marilyn and I were watching Yankee Doodle Dandy, and we remembered that Jimmy Cagney was one of the people that I met uh, during my professional career, and that just happened to be because he was on the vineyard, and I was vacationing on the Martha's Vineyard, and he happened to have uh, caught me on Boston television, and we had a nice long afternoon of a chit-chat in which he called me young fella. And um, I just I just reveled in being able to spend some time with a, with a Hollywood legend because of the fact that I was on Boston TV and I was on Boston TV because of WVHCFM. Now you started your career at ABC Radio Network News down here in New York. Could you tell us a bit about what you were doing there? Yes, um, there had been uh, several people at WVHCFM who preceded me working at um, ABC. Uh, one of them being Bob Ring, and another being Dick Maitland, and they made me aware of openings at ABC, and uh, it was as simple as, to a certain extent, following the lead that Bob and Dick gave me, making some phone calls and uh, submitting a, a resume, and I would like to say that within the span of two or three weeks, there were, there, there were openings. I heard right back from ABC. ABC had just uh, begun what they call the uh, Quad Net Network, which meant they were doing five radio newscasts on the hour. And they were looking for bodies. They were looking for young people. They were looking for people with some kind of radio experience. And I happened to be there at the right time, and I guess I had the, the skills that they needed. And so I was able to, to vault from working at WVHC and working... Uh, at commercial Long Island stations, I was able to vault seamlessly uh, into ABC. And at, that was also the time when uh, war was breaking out in the Middle East and the Vietnam War was still going. So I landed smack dab into the middle of everything at ABC Network. 
then where did your career progress to after ABC and what eventually led you to Boston? Well, I, I should say, I should let you know that uh, I began in the, uh, the back rooms of ABC Network, working in there, uh, intaking um, audio tapes, and then going on to produce newscasts for, you know, people like uh, Howard Cosell and Howard K. Smith, uh, Bill Butel, um, and others that I'm probably forgetting. I was also able to uh, get my first taste of television at ABC uh, when they allowed me to go to Vietnam and um, work as a producer and stringer reporter. So I had my first taste of television actually was working at the network, uh, and I remember doing one spot on a weekend when all the other TV correspondents were busy. So that, that first taste of television whetted my appetite to move out of radio. And with the help of a, of, of, of a radio newscaster named Sam DePino, uh, I was able to uh, secure a job in, in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, uh, working working in TV news for the first time, and, and I, that's where I really cut my teeth, and it was less than a year, working at uh, Channel 18 in Hartford, uh, Hartford, Connecticut. And while I was working there, I get a call from Boston. And so within the year, I went from ABC in New York to Channel 18 in Connecticut to Channel 7 in Boston. And you were with Channel 7 in Boston for 31 years, which is pretty much but, unheard yeah. of these days. It, 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 it was unheard of, and as far as I know, there may be some, some of my colleagues and contemporaries who may be up to that mark and perhaps overstepping me. But that, yeah, that was, that was um, quite, a, quite a lengthy hitch. And, you know, when you're in the midst of, of working, you never think about it. Uh, I was aware of all the changes that were taking place around me uh, in terms of news directors and general managers and anchor people who came and went. But it was like one day after the other. It's like they say when you're playing Major League Baseball, it's one game at a time, one day at a time. But uh, it, it, again, we go back to the timing. During that period, if, if, you, if you remember, I started at Channel 7 back in 1970. They were still shooting uh, news on film. In some cases, they were shooting still black and white film. In some cases, they were still shooting silent film. So. I was working in a period where there was a, a, a lot of things going on. They went from silent black and white film to color film to sound film. Then they went from that to videotape. And then as time went by, we eventually uh, evolved into uh, digital uh, video. So a lot of things happened during the period of 31 years. So it sounds like you really had the opportunity to watch the technology of television evolve and to evolve with it. What would you yes, say? Yes, I did, and it, it was absolutely amazing. And I have to say again, when you're working, as you well know, uh, you, you know things are happening, but you, I think it takes a while to be able to look back in, in, with retrospect to appreciate all the things that are happening. As... as, as, as Fast as technology is mushrooming today, and I really can't stay with it. I mean, my granddaughter is so much faster than I am on the Internet, but um, so much happened over the course of that 31-year period that it sometimes takes my breath away still. I mean, we talk about all the luminaries I interviewed over the years, but the technology is mind-boggling. I remember an old 
cameraman I was working with in the early 70s when we first started experimenting with videotape, and he said it was just a, a passing bat, and it would never work. It was a hunk of junk. Uh, and we all know how accurate that was. But it was just amazing. And the fact that we had to adapt to all of those changes still amazes me that, that we were able to do that. Time and technology marches on. And let me remind our audience that we're speaking with WRHU, WVHC alumni Gary Armstrong, who basically, if you owned a TV set and lived in Boston during his 31 years at WHDH TV7, you knew very well who Gary Armstrong was. Now, Gary, I'd like to turn to the, back to the days when you were working at WVHC. I understand you first walked through the door in 1960, which was just very shortly after WVHC had gone on air in 1959. Prior to 59, the station was WHCH, a carrier current station. What areas of radio did you get involved with at WVHC? I first began, uh, as I say, I walked through the doors as a visitor back in 1960, and I was, I was immediately taken with it. I had, I had always kind of thought of a career in radio or maybe writing or there was a part of me that wanted to become an actor in movies but i was taken right away with um, what i saw in the radio station which was uh, then in the basement at 400 b mason hall below the the old little theater and uh, when i was invited to uh, join the station i was working on um scripts i was working as i was working in continuity i was trying to train to uh, search my mind as you asked me the question. So I was working in continuity, uh, the, uh, the logs, and I went from that to producing uh, a show called Myth and the Music. St I still had not gone on the air, and I kept pestering um, the late Jeff Krause, who then was the, uh, the station manager, to allow me to go on the air. And uh, he finally relented, and I began... I began hosting some of the myth and the music shows, and that was the beginning of my career as a, uh, as a broadcaster. Before I lose my train of thought, I really want to talk a little bit about what WVHC meant to me, uh, both personally and professionally. Uh, for people of a certain age, they will understand what I'm talking about. Uh, back in 1961, there were very few people of color on the campus of then Hofstra College, which was still a commuting college back then. So there you have, uh, I think I was all of 19 years old, and I was a shy person. I could have been green, and I was still a shy person, but there I was, a, a shy young black kid, painfully uh, insecure, knowing I wanted to do something, and not feeling at all easy around people in general. And I was welcomed by Jeff Krause and Bob Ring and Dick Maitland and others I can't really remember at this point, but they welcomed me in without making a big deal out of it. And when I discovered that I had a talent and an appreciation for working in radio, I blossomed personally. I, I felt like a real person, as corny as that may sound. Professionally, I was able to, and I didn't know I had the talent, I found out that I really could write. I could write for radio. I had kind of a voice to work on radio. The other thing I want to add is that I had been hard of hearing all my life, and I was wearing hearing aids at that point, but I wasn't wearing my hearing aids every day. And 
through the uh, support of Jeff Krause, I started wearing my hearing aids every day, but I still had diction problems. So I took speech therapy courses, which enabled me to improve my diction. And by improving my diction, I was able to later on secure the jobs that I got uh, on radio and, you know, ultimately television. So WVHC really gave me uh, an incredible boost, both professionally and personally, that I've never forgotten. And over the years, when people asked me how I got started or how it was that I was so sure and confident of myself wherever I went, to the day that we're speaking, because when I go out shopping where we live locally in Massachusetts, people will still walk up to me and ask me for autographs, even though I've been retired for a number of years. And the question is, why do you always seem so comfortable on television and we thought you were talking to us? I always say to people, it began with a radio station on Long Island at Hofstra College 50 years ago with people who literally changed my life. Well, Gary, it sounds like Hofstra Radio was near and dear to your heart, as is the case with me and many of our alumni. That's why we're all returning during this alumni marathon to try to help raise funds for Hofstra Radio. Uh, this has been a fascinating interview, and I wish we could go on. We have so much more that we could talk about, but the stage manager is giving me the rap cue, and being in broadcast news yourself, you know how that goes. Well, maybe next year we can talk a little bit more about some of those people that um, I was so fortunate to meet along the way. Gary, I would love to. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you, Mike. Thank you for having me on, and, and please relay my, my congratulations to those working and also to uh, the people I used to work with. And thank you again, and best of luck in your fundraising. Will do, Gary, and I'm hoping that for some of the upcoming Hofstra Radio alumni events, maybe we can get you and Marilyn to make the trek down from Boston and join us. I think we can work that out. You give us a heads up, and we'll do our best to make it. Thank you so much, Gary. You're listening to 88.7 FM WRHU. This is the second annual All-Star Alumni Marathon, and we just heard from Gary Armstrong. Bruce Avery is still in the studio with us. And Bruce, I know you used to live in the Boston area prior to moving down here. And I remember when we were talking about creating the Hall of Fame for the 50th anniversary, you were very excited when you learned that Gary Armstrong was one of us. Um, in Boston, Gary Armstrong was the best investigative reporter in the city's history. And I didn't know him as a human. Uh, I knew him as a broadcaster and a, a television investigative reporter. And it was a real honor and a real pleasure to find out that his roots had been here at Radio Hofstra University and that I definitely could give a, a testimonial to his broadcast career because I grew up uh, watching him and, and then going to college and, and, and emulating him. And he is one of the best ever. And, uh, and now I can call him a colleague and a friend uh, through the Hofstra Radio alumni experience, which is one of the wonderful things and one of the reasons that we're doing this, where we have all-star marathons with folks like Gary Armstrong and Dick Maitland and Sue Zizza and yourself come back and, and, and work with us, the administrators, and also the current staff to make the educational experience here just all that much more special. And little did you know when you came to Hofstra that in regard to Gary Armstrong, you would in effect be closing the circle and joining the <laughs> Gary Armstrong team, so to speak. And uh, that's a real joy. That's one of the pleasures of this job. 
I want to say to our audience, if there are any of you who haven't donated to Hofstra Radio because you can't afford to make a large donation and you feel that the small amount that you could donate, $5, $10, wouldn't do any good, that's absolutely not true. We're very grateful for any amount that you can donate to us. And if everyone listening now were to donate a small amount, just think, if a thousand of you listening donated $5 each, that's $5,000. That would be a tremendous boost to Hofstra Radio. And Bruce is going to tell you what you need to do if you'd like to help us out. We've made it very, very simple. Uh, the technological advances over the last few years are amazing. Uh, the splash page of our website, WRHU.org, you go to the upper left-hand corner and on to Donate Now. You just follow the prompts. And and I actually did it. It took less than a minute to do uh, with a credit card. And you can even put in some comments along there. And I want to tell and make sure everybody understands that that money directly goes into the gifts account of WRHU, and all that money is gone, goes straight into making the experience for the audience and the staff as good as it can be here. Uh, we in, reinvest all of that money into either technology or into travel for our current staff. And no donation is too small, and any amount that you can donate will be greatly appreciated. We'll be back with our next interview after a short music break. Listening to a little video killed the radio star, a statement that our next guest, I believe, would very strongly disagree with. Sue Zizza is the founder and president of Sue Media. She's a multi-award winning producer and director of audio theater, as well as a sound designer and Foley sound effects artist. She's been active with the National Audio Theater Festivals and the Midwest Radio Theater Workshop. She's won numerous awards for her work in audio, including the International Radio Festival's Gold and Bronze Medals, the Golden and Silver Reels, the Crystal Communicator Award, the Wilbur Award, the Gracie Award, two-time winner of the Zeitfunk Award, and a multi-finalist for the Audi Award. Sue, thank you so much for joining us. Why, thank you. The only thing you forgot to mention is that uh, for the last decade, I've been teaching audio recording and sound design at New York University in the film school area. So my world both includes video and radio these days, Mike. 
Yes, uh, it does. And we used to find radio theater or audio drama, whatever you would want to call it, all over the radio dial, going back to the golden age of radio. And these days it's become much rarer, but you're certainly doing your part to keep the art form alive and well. Could you tell us a little about your work in audio theater? Well, um, for the last 20-plus years, as you mentioned, I've been a... a sound effects artist, I've been a producer, a director, but also I have actually had the opportunity to work in a, in a uh, more far-reaching capacity as the executive director of first the Midwest Radio Theater Workshop and then the National Audio Theater Festivals, as you've mentioned, and also uh, to move on in, onto their board of directors and now to be actually helping to create the first ever listening festival in the United States uh, purely for audio storytelling of every kind. So next June, my career will extend to having launched the Here Now Audio Fiction and Arts Festival, which is happening uh, in the latter part of June in 2013 in Kansas City. And uh, anybody who's interested in what's happening in contemporary sonic storytelling, whether that's audio theater, audio books, um, all kinds of other spoken word genres, poetry and slam poetry and all those kinds of things, sketch comedy and uh, the more classic genres of mystery and science fiction and fantasy. Next June in Kansas City, fans, producers, performers will have the opportunity to come together and celebrate the audio drama arts, because actually, Mike, although we don't hear it on the radio, in commercial radio, in the United States, the way we may have during, as you mentioned, the golden age, throughout the world, audio drama is still an art form that is produced for all, all varieties of uh, entertainment and educational media. The BBC has, although audio drama is a classically American art form, odd, it, became, it began here, but it got exported to Britain, where it really took a big foothold at the BBC and has been a mainstay of radio programming there for decades. And additionally, all throughout Europe, China, Asia, South America, there's a great deal of audio drama, audio theater uh, being produced. And here in the United States, uh, working with the National Audio Theater Festivals these last almost uh, 15 years now, and, and prior to that, the Midwest Radio Theater Workshop, there are tremendous groups and enclaves of audio theater producers all over the country. And the web has given us an opportunity uh, to bring this uh, programming out. There are people like Fred Greenhaw and Final Ruin in uh, Portland, Maine, who just won uh, this year's um, Mark Time Award for some of his work. And then we also have people in uh, Washington, the state of, and all over California producing audio drama. And, of course, we have artists like uh, David Osman in the Fireside Theater, who've been producing, Phil Proctor, his partner, have been producing a kind of sketch comedy that's been heard first on the radio and then, and then in albums. They just won this year's Corwin Award for their contribution. We have producers like Tom Lopez at ZBS. So 
all over the country, we have these wonderful producers, and I've been lucky enough to not only have the opportunity to work in this art form in my own career, most recently um, I've started a whole new style of audiobooks, which I call illuminated audiobooks. I've also had the chance to do uh, really outstanding cultural, dramatic programming for public radio. Uh, which is of Lublin is a piece that was most recently produced out of our studio that deals with Jewish culture around the Passover holidays, but really has a much broader um, message of tolerance and uh, religious uh, issues. And then also we've done pieces around other kinds of American icons like Jack Kerouac. So in my company, Sue Media Productions, we've not only had the opportunity to work with many other talented producers like David Osman and Charlie Potter and Tom Lopez and all these people throughout the years, but in the last 10 years, we've also been putting out a number of our own projects and products, and we have worked both in public radio and more recently in the audiobook community. And as I mentioned, in addition currently to working on creating this listening festival here now, the Audio Fiction and Arts Festival. Uh, we're also working on creating this series of audiobooks for Audible.com's Neil Gaiman Presents line. And Neil Gaiman, uh, the science fiction, the, excuse me, the fantasy sci-fi writer, has been very encouraging of this style of audiobooks in which we have the classic narrator and the full cast production come together in a way that is not only exciting to the listener but cost-effective to the producer so we're able to put out more of this kind of high production value uh, book in in the audiobook world and so for me uh, audio drama just you know has been the thing that has really sustained my creative life and um, all began at WVHC well, it sounds like the art form is still alive and well, thanks largely to people like you and your colleagues that are putting in so much effort to keep it going. With so many different areas of radio available, what is it about radio drama or audio theater that really sparked your interest and made you decide that that was the area of media that you wanted to focus on, and what role did your time at WVHC play in that? Well, uh, to begin with, why audio drama? I think it happened one day at WVHC when uh, Jeff Krause put a tape on and said, listen to this. And I heard this uh, group of characters and these sound effects and all of that, and it reminded me that when I was a very young child listening to the radio on Sunday mornings, I used to tune in before anybody was up in my house to a program called Unshackled. And this was a show that came out of Chicago, and I believe it is still the longest-running uh, audio drama, original audio drama programming in the United States. And it was a Christian Bible storytelling program. But it was great because in the mornings on a Sunday, I could turn on the radio, and when everybody else was asleep in the house, I could listen to these these characters coming out of the radio, and I could see in my head these Bible stories coming to life. Well, it wasn't that I was necessarily a religious person. It was the idea of listening to something and seeing it come to life 
in my head, the way that I saw the way, uh, you know, the nativity looked or the way Mary and Joseph looked. So I had this opportunity to, in effect, as I was listening to the radio as a little kid, create these images that really affected how those stories touched me and how I understood those Bible stories. So years later, we fast forward to the basement of uh, the little theater, and uh, Jeff Krause is playing this tape, and it's just a little tiny skit from a show called Fulton's Folly, and I'm listening to these college students play these different characters, and it's funny, and it's fast-paced, and there's all this interesting sound, and I'm reminded of this thing that I used to love to listen to as a kid, and I said, how can I do that? And from the very first project I ever got involved with at WVHC, Jeffrey was extremely encouraging. It was his art form. He loved to act. He, he really brought something to the microphone in that wonderful voice that he had. And so it just, it just sparked my imagination. And when I thought about the idea of telling stories in film or telling stories in television, there was always this visual wall for me that, you know, I, I didn't want someone else to see the same pictures I saw. I wanted them to bring their own imagination to the process. And in that way, we become very collaborative in not only the creating but the listening aspect of this art form. And I, I think that's it. I think that it allows me with um, not as big a budget as even the smallest independent film to create this incredibly rich and um, enriched world for people to put their headphones on or turn the radio on, close their eyes. And, you know, my heroine and my hero might be brunettes, but someone else's might be redheads. And so in that way, I get the opportunity not only to create for myself, but to create a palette that someone else can then pick up and, and make it their own at the same time. I think there's something very intimate and very um, instinctual about what sound does to us. You know, I've studied psychoacoustics in order to be able to be a better sound designer and to be able to teach my class at New York University. And so I, I do understand that sound affects us on a physical level. It affects us on an emotional level. And when we tell stories in sound only, which go all the way back to Homer and the oral storytelling traditions that we have in our culture and in our human experience, there wasn't, you know, there might have been people dancing around a fire, but you didn't have films and you didn't have pictures to say this is the only way to interpret this story. And that's what I love about it. It lets me just, with the littlest sound, the littlest note, the littlest piece of music, that perfect turn of the voice, that perfect performance, pop this thing right off the page and make it become 3D in your mind. So I definitely agree with you that listening to 
audio theater is so much more of an active experience for the listener than watching a dramatic presentation on film or television, where, as you said, everything is pretty much given to you. And with audio drama, the listener, as you said, does indeed become part of the collaborative process and bring something as a contributor to the process where you could play the same audio drama for 10 different people and say, what did the main character look like or what did the setting look like? And each person could give you a totally different answer and they would all be right because that's what it looked like in their mind's eye. That's exactly correct. In fact, Mike, I have this lecture that I do on what's the difference between Foley and sound effects work. And I explain to my students, you see this prop, these pair of shoes? When I'm a Foley artist, these pair of shoes are locked to the action in front of me on that flat screen, on that one-dimensional plane. And so when Julia Roberts takes three steps left and then turns around and takes three steps right and then turns around and takes two steps and flings that frying pan at George Clooney in one of the Endless Ocean whatever movies, that's all I can do as a performer. I'm locked right to those physical movements I see, and those shoes are just there, and that frying pan is just there to enact what I see in front of me. Whereas when I'm a sound effects artist and I'm doing that same fight scene between a couple, and it can still be Julia and George's voices, now I interpret how she's moving around in a very different way because I listen to the cues in the voice. So I may choose to pace two steps and then four steps and then three steps and then throw the frying pan, but I'm not locked in the same physical space and time. And I, as a sound effects artist, get to bring a good deal more interpretive and acting skill to that moment of that fight than I do when I'm a Foley artist. And it's not that there isn't the same level of artistry in terms of performing the sound effect. It's a slightly different mindset as the performing artist. In one, my job is to enact that scene that I'm seeing in front of me with the right intensity, the right motion, the right movement, you know, in harmony with what I'm seeing on sta- uh, in front of me on that Foley stage. And in the sound effects studio, I'm listening to these tracks, and I'm now imagining myself in her body with that voice and thinking, how would I move to throw this frying pan at him? So that's fascinating, and you just educated me because I had always been using the terms Foley artist and sound effects artist interchangeably, and I didn't realize that there was actually a functional difference between them. We have, this has been such a great interview, and I wish we could go on because there's so much more I'd like to talk to you about. But being in the media, you know that we all have to answer to the clock on the wall, and unfortunately, it's giving me a rap cue. Well, thank you, Mike, for the opportunity to talk to you, and also thank you to the Hofstra Radio Alumni Association and WRHU for continuing the opportunity to support audio arts at the station. Thank you, Mike. It's been my pleasure, Sue, and thank you for giving our audience a brief education on the art of audio theater. I hope you've enjoyed the interviews that we've brought you during this special edition of the Hofstra Radio Alumni Show during the WRHU second annual All-Star Alumni Marathon. You can make a donation to Radio Hofstra University 
Simply click on to WRHU.org and click on the Donate Now button located on the left-hand side of the page. It's a quick, simple way to show your support for Radio Hofstra University. The current students and staff greatly appreciate your generous support. 